Father, we are so grateful for the cross. We are grateful for the fact that, Lord, though we all truly were once strangers, all pursuing after our own selfish gains, you have, because of the death and resurrection of our Savior and, and, give, and the gift of faith, allowed for us to become one and to no longer live for ourselves but for you. We're grateful, Father, for this, and we pray that you would be with us as we now uh, worship you through the, the preaching of your word. We're grateful, Father, for this time that we got to sing together, to remind each other of truth through singing, and we pray that now as we look at the truth of your word in, in preaching, that you would be pleased as we consider how we might stir up one another. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's in your sense that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again to all of you. It's a joy to be able to worship together as the family of God. Um, and uh, just by way of reminder for uh, those who are a part of this local assembly, those who are uh, members of this church, immediately following our closing prayer this morning, we will have a members-only announcement. So if you are a member of this church, we encourage you to stay behind just for a few minutes so that we can attend to some family matters. If you're here uh, and you're a visitor or just a regular attender, we're really grateful to have you here um, and uh, that you're worshiping with us this morning. We do ask, though, that uh, during this family announcement that you uh, do kindly um, exit the worship hall. And uh, if you can, we'd love for you to stick around. After The announcement will be short. So if you can stick around so, so that we can have a chance to greet you and, and, um, and welcome you, we would love to be able to do that. Um, now, with that being said, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 23 through 25. And just in case, just in case you're worried that somehow we fast-forwarded from Hebrews 2 all the way to Hebrews 10 and that you missed eight chapters of Hebrews, don't worry, you didn't, you're fine. I'm not uh, joining Pastor Henry in preaching in uh, the book of Hebrews just yet. Um, we're just covering our next one another, stir up one another. So uh, let's read the text and pray for God's blessing on our service this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, reads this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Our God, we're grateful to you that we have your word and that through it we know more about you and what you want for us in our lives. We pray that as we study this text this morning that you would be pleased as we strive to honor you and to consider how we can live together as the church as you've intended us to, or to please you in all respects. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, during the pandemic, many of us felt that cold and bitter sting of isolation as we were told by our local government not to gather together out of an abundance of caution and to slow the spread of COVID. And many of you, as a result of that experience, have told us in some form or another how you learned from this pandemic, how you were reminded from this pandemic of the importance of the church family gathering together. And you were reminded that we ought not to take the gathering of believers 
for granted. Now, we certainly don't want to make light of what happened during the pandemic. But the importance of the gathering together of the church was certainly a great reminder for all of us that the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. God created all of us in his image. And one of the ways that we reflect that image is how we relate to him and how we relate to each other. God, even before time began, was relating to himself among the Godhead. And so as we gather together, we relate to each other, and we mirror that relationship that he had even from before all creation began. Now, we understand that we are all to meet together, to gather together, but have you ever stopped to wonder, what does life together as the church look like? What should it look like? How do we relate to one another? How can we make sure that we do not take our blessing and our freedom to gather together in this country for granted? How can we make sure that we are, if you will, getting the most out of fellowship and worship together? Our goal this morning is to explore three considerations for how we approach life together as the church. Three considerations for how we approach life together as the church. The first consideration is that our hope is in our faithful God. The second consideration is that our faith leads to love and works. And the third consideration is that our faith brings us together. As always, the points will show up later, so if you don't get it all right now, it's okay. Also, if you want to see the handout with all the cross-references that I have, uh, it is in the bulletin, so you can find it there as well. But uh, the first consideration for how we approach life together as the church is that our hope is in our faithful God. Now, in context, Hebrews chapter 10 is meant to help believers see the great confidence we can have in our relationship with God because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Because Jesus' death on the cross is superior to the offerings of bulls and goats, every person who believes in him and repents of their sin can have confidence that not only... Not only are the complete and total forgiveness of sins possible, but that God will also help us be holy. As such, we always have confidence to approach our Lord. We always have confidence to approach our Lord in worship. Therefore, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The idea of let us hold fast is a firm clinging to something, like a tradition or a belief. For example, if someone were to come into our church and try to convince us that Jesus Christ did not actually have a real physical body, therefore he did not really physically die on the cross, because, well, if he had a physical body, he can't be God, because God's holy and Physical material things are not holy, therefore he can't be God, or that, therefore he didn't have a physical body. Right? If they were trying to convince us of that, we would reject them outright. Why? Because that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's contrary to what we believe the Bible to teach, uh, teaches that is true. 
And we will not be swayed. We will not change our mind. We will hold fast to that belief that Jesus did have a physical body, that he did have a a physical death and a physical resurrection. That's what it means to hold fast to something. You cling onto it tight and you don't let it go. Now, what are we to have this firmness of conviction about in particular? Well, the author of Hebrews identifies this as our confession of our hope. But the confession of our hope is the hope that we have the forgiveness of sin. Now, why should we hold fast to the hope of forgiveness of sins without wavering? Well, he says here, it's because he who promised is faithful. He who promised the forgiveness of sins is faithful to keep his promises. Because we are human, right? We will at times experience a crisis of faith or a season of doubt. We may at times doubt that God will be faithful to keep his promises, especially when trials or difficulties that we might experience in this life make it seem as if God is far, far away, that he doesn't care about us. But notice, the unwavering nature of our hope is not in our ability to make ourselves feel close to God. Did you catch that? Our ability, our, our ability to have unwavering faith in God is not, is not contingent on how close we feel to God. Sometimes when someone asks us how we're doing, Right, how we're doing in the faith. Our evaluation of where we're at in our relationship with God is based off of how we feel in that particular moment. Right, if you came into worship and you're hearing all these songs that speak of the beauty of our God and the beauty of the cross, and yet you know that you have sin in your own heart, it kind of makes you feel a little awkward, doesn't it? Or maybe on your way here, there there was a lot of traffic and there was some car that cut you off. You got mad. Maybe you didn't utter cuss words, curse words. Maybe it was in your mind. It was in your heart. Or for those of you who have families, your little kids are not cooperating as you're trying to get out the door. You're trying to get to church on time. You're mad at them. You're mad at your spouse because they're taking too long, right? And you come to worship, and you're just like, man, I just, I just don't feel close to God in this particular moment. Right? This can affect all of us. This can be something that all of us feel. Right? I don't feel particularly close to God, so my walk with God is probably not too great. That's what we tend to think. But our unwavering faith in God is not based on how you feel. It's not based on how, you, how close you feel to God in that moment. Our unwavering faith in God is anchored in the absolute faithfulness of God himself. One of my professors put it this way. When it comes to faith, faith itself doesn't really save you. Right? Faith itself doesn't save you. And that might be a foreign concept to some of you. Because right? you're just like, wait, but aren't we saved by faith? Yes and no. Yes and no. If we were 
it, you know, let's say, Lord forbid, this building is on fire. And we got knocked down, we got knocked unconscious. And someone is gracious enough to pick us up and bring us out of the building. Right? And midway in bringing us out of the building, we wake up and we see them holding us and we're really grateful for them. Right? And they pull us out. Right? At the end, when you're outside, safe and sound, what saved you? Or was it your faith in the person holding you that saved you? Right, the answer would be no. Right, if you were to be like, yeah, it's because of how strong my faith was in this person carrying me out. That's the reason why I got saved. That person would probably be like, really? It's your faith that brought you out here? I'm going to throw you back in the fire. Right, no, right? It's not our faith that saves us. It's the strength of the one our faith is in. Right? It's the one our faith is in. He's the one who saves us. When God saves us by grace through faith, you, we, we have to remember, he's the one who graciously grants us that faith in the first place. Right? So who saves us? It's God. Your faith doesn't save you. God saves you. He gives you the faith so that you can believe, so that he will forgive you. Right? But it's him and his faithfulness to save that saves you. And so, in those moments of doubt, in those moments where God appears hazy in our vision, in our sight, we recall to mind what we've believed about him. If we know that we've believed in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, and that we've repented of our sins, we can have assurance that our sins are forgiven. After all, 1 John 1, 9 reminds us If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, when the winds of doubt blow through us, we recall to mind the faithfulness of God to forgive us of all of our sins, all of the sins that we have ever done, all the sins that we ever will do. After all, look at God's relationship with Israel. Even though Israel sinned against him so many times by breaking the law, which, by the way, they swore they would follow. They swore they would observe. God was still willing to forgive them. And he's still willing to forgive them today. If he who promised to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness is willing to forgive the sins of the people who continually sin against him, willfully sin against him, how much more will he be willing to forgive us of our sins when we confess them to him? And we can cling to that hope of forgiveness of sins because we know he will be faithful to forgive us of our sins. As a church that strives to live together to glorify God, this is the hope and the truth that we must remind each other of as we walk through this life together. There will be moments in everyone's life where busyness, stress, sorrow, or other various kinds of sufferings cause us to lose sight of God. We either lose sight of Him completely or it's just super foggy. And it's kind of like, oh, maybe I see God, but I can't really. It's in those moments. And we need to have faithful brothers and sisters who can come alongside us to provide hope, helping us remember that our hope is not 
in our circumstances getting better. Our hope is not in our circumstances going away. But our hope is in the faithful God who saved us. And that leads us to the second consideration for how we approach life together as the church, which is our faith leads us to love and good works. Our faith leads to love and good works. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So as we, the church, live life together, we don't just help each other remember the hope that we have in the God who saves. But we also encourage each other in how we relate to other people. Remember, the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all that we are and that we love people. And in particular, our relationship with people is seen in love and good deeds. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you that the author of Hebrews is not saying that love and good deeds save you. He's not advocating for a works-based salvation. However, love and good deeds are the evidence that we have been saved. They're like the receipt that we get when we're shopping at Costco and we're, going to try, we're trying to exit the warehouse. And there's those people there who are trying to verify that you've purchased everything that's in your cart. That receipt is evidence that you've paid for everything that's in your cart. Right? Or maybe not if you, uh, you know, did something you weren't supposed to do. Or maybe your checker forgot to, to scan something. Right? And then they'll send you back and you've got to go pay for it. Anyways, right? it's the receipt, it's the proof, it's the proof that you've done what you should have done, right? that you paid for everything. In James chapter 2, four, verse 14, James writes this, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James is not redefining salvation, but pointing to the fact that a genuine, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ leads to good works. Or if you want to think about it this way, a genuine, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ always produces good fruit in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17 to 20, even so, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Anyone can walk around saying that they're a Christian. But are they really Christians? Or did they just grow up in a Christian household? Did they go to a Christian school? What makes them a Christian? The genuineness of someone's profession of faith becomes evident as you watch their lives. And not just like a little snippet of their lives. Not just 30 minutes or an hour of their life. But their whole life will bear the testimony of whether they're saved or not. Love and good deeds can be evidences of how God has changed our hearts from hearts that produce nothing but bad fruit to hearts that now produce the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the key. Our hearts ought to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now, for some of us, of course, depending on where you are in your faith, some of that production of fruit might not be a lot, but it should still be there. It should still be there. 
Let's work that out a little bit more. As we consider the love that we show other people, what is our standard of love? What is our standard of love? How do you know if you are acting in a way that is loving towards others? Is your standard of love based on what the world is saying is loving? Or is your standard of love Christ's love? Right? Trying to mirror his love. There's a difference, right? There's a difference. The world's idea of love is often marked by kindness and compassion towards others. Essentially, it's defined as doing no harm to nobody. That's okay, but it's insufficient. Christ's love for us, on the other hand, is marked by kindness, compassion, yes, but also gentleness, long-suffering, mercy, and grace. Right? The standard of love that Christ calls us to is much higher. The world preaches love and kindness, but they only show that love and kindness to others if they feel like you deserve it. If they feel that you're pitiable enough to extend compassion to. Or if they feel like you believe the right things in life, therefore we will love you. But you know, right? If you cross them, if you disagree with them, you're no longer going to experience their love and kindness. Tolerance is for everyone unless you don't agree with them. They will not tolerate nonconformity. They will not love those who do not conform. The love of Christ, however, is far different. It's vastly different. It was shown to us by God while we were still enemies. Romans 5. While we were still enemies at the right time, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We didn't make a move towards him. We didn't indicate that we wanted to have a relationship with him. And yet, God, in his mercy and in his kindness, loved us anyway. By sending his son, his one and only son, to die on the cross for our sins. That's the extent of God's love for us. That's the standard of love that we ought to have. Does our love look like that? Yes, we'll stumble and fail. Yes, we will fall short. But does our love look like that? Does it look like his love for us? Or does it look like the petty, grudgy, favoritism-driven love of the world? It is certainly something that we all ought to consider as we evaluate our love. Now, good deeds, they're pretty self-explanatory, but the key question is this. Do we strive to do good deeds towards others as we should? Now, I'm not saying... That we ought to do good deeds just for the sake of doing good deeds. Right? Anybody can do that. Do we do good deeds out of our love for God the Father? Or do we do good deeds out of our love for God the Father? In Titus 2, 14, Paul reminds us the reasons why Christ died on the cross for us. He died on the cross to save us from our sins, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and he also died to purify his people who are, as you can see on that slide, defined by their zealousness for good works. Later in Titus 3.8, Paul wants Titus to be bold in proclaiming the gospel and encouraging the people of Crete to apply the scriptures 
to their lives so that they will be intent to lead in good works. Did you notice that? Not just do good works, but to lead in good works. Now, I know some of you might be feeling a little nervous and a little squirrely because you're just like, oh, where is he going with this? Right? Good works, doing good works is not a social justice corrupted concept. But it is something that God himself wants us to be involved with in our lives. We don't have to be afraid of good works as if it's some sort of liberalizing corruption that sneaks into the church so long as we remember the good, I'm sorry, the goal of good works. You don't have to worry so long as you remember the goal of good works. Now, what do I mean by that? Many organizations that we can think of today that began with Christian roots often had obedience to Christ as their primary motivation in loving others. But as time went on, as successes piled on, these organizations lost the sight of the main mission. They lost sight of the main mission. They lost sight of Christ. It became about numbers. It became about just getting people into the door. And in so doing, they lost Christ. In our pursuit of good works in obedience to God, we have to remember to keep Christ as the focal point of our ministries. We love others because we love Christ. We seek to do good to others because we love Christ. We seek to meet the needs of others because we love Christ. The love of Christ compels us to do these things. A commitment to the glory of God needs to be the foundation of any good work that we set out to do. And it must remain the foundation for all that we do. In perpetuity, forever, Christ needs to be central. We cannot lose Christ or we will lose ourselves. If we forget Christ in the midst of our good works, we become just regular people who do nice things for others. In other words, we become just like everybody else. But we're not supposed to be just like everybody else. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ so that we can be his ambassadors to this world. So we don't want to be just like everybody else. Returning to Hebrews 10, 24. We are told by the author of Hebrews that we ought to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Another way that we can translate that is that we are to consider how we can provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, normally we think of provoking as a negative action, but this is a positive provoking, right? And encouraging and inspiring of one another to love and good deeds. And so knowing that it is good and right for us to show love and good deeds to others, we are reminded that we must put energy into thinking about all the different ways that we can show love and good deeds to others to the glory of God. We have to put energy into it. We have to think about it. There is no one-size-fit-all approach to love and good deeds. Some of us have particular ministries that we love, and we want to get other people involved in those ministries with us. And that's great. That's fine. Because it exposes us to different avenues that we might be able to serve the church. But may I caution you 
lovingly and gently. Not to be discouraged if other people do not come alongside. Or if they come alongside for a season, but then they eventually drop off. Or just because they don't run with you doesn't mean that they don't think it's important. Or that your ministry is not important at all. There perhaps are other ways, better ways for them to be involved with love and good deeds in the church. So you, if you believe that this is right and this is what God wants you to do, keep doing it. Keep doing it, keep pursuing it, right? Because it's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about how many people join us in what we believe to be the most important. What matters is that we strive to obey God and to do the things that he's gifted us to do. And also, just on another side note, just because you don't think that you have a particular spiritual gift doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it. Perhaps it's a skill that needs to be learned and to be cultivated. Right? Teaching children's church might sound scary to some of you. Maybe you don't like children in particular. That's okay. You can learn to love children. You can learn to teach children. And if you try it, and you don't like it, that's fine. There are other ways that we can serve too. We have needs for ushers. We have needs for greeters. We have all sorts of needs. We, we have needs for more people to join worship. There are all sorts of different ways that we can serve in the church. But you know, not only worship. Okay, Let's back off the official ministries of the church. We have needs to take care of each other. We have senior citizens in our church who need some of our help. Can we meet those needs? Can we drive people to church? Absolutely. Right? And if you don't drive, well, obviously that's not for you, right? But you can find, we can find different ways to love on them, right? Having other people in the church come alongside us and show us these different ways that we can love God and love his people can help us excel still more. It doesn't have to be stale. We can excel still more because there are so many different needs, so many different ways that we can show love to others. That brings us to our, our, our um, third consideration for how we approach life together as a church, and that is our faith brings us together. Our faith brings us together. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As You've seen in verses 23 and 24, the Christian faith is not lived out in private. It's not just about us and our own walk with Christ. It's not just about us and our salvation. We live this Christian life together as a church, which is why the author of Hebrews exhorts believers to not forsake our own assembling together. Now, we are not told in the text why certain Christians were forsaking assembling together, but they've made it a habit. Right? And the fact that the author of Hebrews wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is super telling. He knows that some people didn't go to church for reasons that were not right, were not acceptable before God. He knew that for one reason or another, there needed to be a correction in terms of their attitude towards church. So he wrote to correct their wrong view of church. Christ, I'm sorry, church is not about us. It's not about how it makes us feel. It's not about whether we've got our favorite songs that made us feel a certain way on a particular Sunday. It's not whether the preacher got us inspired 
to go do something different in life or, or to press on in our suffering. Church is not about us. It's not about our hobby horses. It is where we, people who have been gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation, gather together to worship Him. It's a place where we learn to love Him and to love other people, which in turn which in turn ought to cause us to love other people, to help them love Jesus more so that they can go help other people love Jesus more. It's a continual cycle. It's a continual stream of love Jesus, love other people, love Jesus, love other people. If God wanted us to live alone, he would have not given us the church. He would have had us live by ourselves. But he gives us the church so that we can be that source of encouragement for one another. He gives us each other so that we can encourage one another. So that we can stir one another up. So that we can bear one another's burdens. You might be thinking, brother, I've got plenty of burdens on my own. I don't need to deal with nobody else's burdens. That might feel like it's true. But Galatians 6.1 tells us that we ought to bear one another's burdens. That's why we gather together as a church. This is family life. There are people who might need help. Right? They want to change, but they can't. They're stuck. We're here to help them with that. Right? We're here to remind them of the truth. We're here to remind them of the God who loves them. We're here to point them to the scriptures that can be the encouragement that they need to press on right? or to deal with their sin. Now, with all that being said, I do understand that for some people in our church, they can't come to church, in person, for various health reasons. And that is just the reality of life sometimes. Right? So this passage is not striking out at those who are unable to come to church because of health. So for those of you on our live stream, this is not meant to be a direct attack upon you. What this passage is getting us to think about, though, is that life as believers is meant to be lived together. So we have to think about how do we live life together if our circumstances do not allow for us to gather together. For those of you who are not homebound, those of you who are here in this room right now, how can we minister to those who are homebound? There are all sorts of ways that we can help others in the church who want to obey Christ's command for us not to forsake the assembling together. Perhaps you can drop off a meal and share a word of encouragement or two. Perhaps you can bring over some snacks and you spend time with them. And, um, and just, yeah, see what God's teaching them. Perhaps you can set up a FaceTime or a Zoom or whatever you know, video chat thing that you want so that you can see them and talk with them and just and, and lift them up. Right? There are so many different ways that we can serve, uh, serve others and, and we can fulfill Christ's command to us to not forsake gathering together. Now, obviously, the preference would be for us to do this in person, right? But if we can't because of various reasons, then, that's, then we have to get creative, right? And that's why we ought to consider the different ways that we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And by the way, if you're homebound, or consider how you might be active in reaching out to others as well. Or maybe other people aren't reaching out to you, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. Instead, consider how you might 
engage with the people within the church. Or maybe they didn't even know that you were homebound. Maybe they thought you moved away. Right, so give them a call. Give them a call. Initiate an online hangout. If you're able to, bring them over to your house for tea or coffee. And let's talk about life and faith. Or if you, know, you can't get out in the morning, but it's better for you in the, in the afternoon, then I'd encourage you to try and initiate walking with people in the park or going to the beach or something. And the main point is this. As Christians who recognize that God calls us to live this life together, we have to prioritize genuine fellowship with one another. Right? Not just hanging out and doing fun things, although we can do that too, but let's have spiritual conversations with one another. I remember back in the day when I was in college, we used to, after church, just kind of loiter and just hang out at church, and then we're just like, hey, let's, let's go watch a movie. The new Marvel movie's out. Let's go watch the movie. And we go, we watch the movie, and then we go to In-N-Out afterwards. It's like, hey, we had movie fellowship. It's like, no, we didn't. We were just hanging out. Because right? we didn't talk anything about God. Right? We were just chilling. We were just hanging out. Just talking about nothing. Right? So that's not fellowship. We're just hanging out. Right? You can make it fellowship, though. I'll let you think about how that happens. But anyways, right? let's have spiritual conversations together as a body. Let's ask other people how they're doing. Let's have genuine conversations and not just say, I'm doing all right. And one of my cousins is really good about that. If you ask, if uh, you know, she asks you, how are you doing? You say, okay. She'll, she'll, she'll look at you and be like, oh, no, no, how are you doing? How are you really doing? And I love it for that. Right, how are you doing? What's God been teaching you? How is your walk? Let's pray for other people. Right, as we remember other people's needs, we're like, hey, let's, let's, let's pray for this person right now. Let's think about all the ways that we can meet the needs of people, uh, of people at church together. And as you can see, there's an urgency to our gathering together. And at the very end of verse 25, it says that this lack of, or, or it says that we're not to forsake each, our assembly together, right? We're to encourage each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You would think that if the day is drawing near, if Christ's return is coming, that maybe we don't need so much church time with other people. Because right? it's like, well, I'm going to spend eternity with you all, so you know, I don't want to hang out with you right now. I, I have eternity for that, right? And that might be what we're tempted to think, right? It's like, nah, I'm good. I'll, I need some alone time, right? That might be our temptation, but it says here, no, all the more, even as the return of Christ is drawing near, gather together. Why? It's not for our sake. It's not for our sake, but as we gather, we show the world that we believe this gospel. We show the world and the community around us that Christ really did come to deal with our sins, and he's coming again. And that's why we gather together to proclaim the glories of Calvary to one another, to remind each other, keep going. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep loving Jesus, because he's worth it. That's why we gather together. Not just because we have to, not just because, well, I feel weird if I don't. Right? You should want to come because you love Jesus. 
and gathering together with the saints helps you love Jesus more. Do you believe he's beautiful? Do you believe he's worth it? Do you believe that he's worth your time? If yes, then let's come. Let's gather. Let's worship our Lord and help each other see that he's altogether beautiful, altogether wonderful, altogether worthy of our hearts and our affections. The glory of God compels us to gather. It compels us to live as Christians. So I implore you, brothers and sisters, do not neglect gathering together. Let us gather together because we love Jesus and we want others to love Jesus too. Because we want them to see it is worth it to come here. Because we get to see more of Jesus. This morning, we had the opportunity to observe three considerations for how we approach life together as a church. And as we live life together, we recognize that our goal in gathering together is to minister to one another in various ways. We remind each other first of the faithful God who loves us so that we can help people find their comfort and strengthen Him. When we gather together, we also have the opportunity to influence each other, to consider the different ways we can love each other within the church and those outside the church. We help each other consider new avenues to do good deeds to others. And additionally, we have the opportunity to build each other up as we proclaim together the coming of our Lord and as we remind each other that Christ is worth it. God has ordained that the church be his witness to the whole world, that Christ is coming again. So our gathering together not only reminds us of our purpose and reinvigorates us for the task at hand, but it also serves as a beautiful picture of how God brings people from every tongue, tribe, and nation together to be his, one in Christ. Some application questions for you to consider as we are about to end our service. How can we remember the faithfulness of God? Or sorry, how how can remembering the faithfulness of God help us in seasons of doubt? Number two, what are some ways we can encourage each other in love and good deeds in the church family? Number three, what are some ways that we can encourage each other in love and good deeds outside the church? Number four, how can we encourage one another in fellowship when we gather at church. If you missed the slide, uh, you can also go to the bulletin, uh, and it has the handout uh, in there. Uh, but yeah, it's just some, some, good, some good questions for us to consider as we try and apply this passage to our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word, for how it reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ, and how that hope is something that inspires us and encourages us to proclaim your love to others around us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be secure in that hope, to love you all the more, and to help others do the same. We're grateful, Father, for this, cha- this time that we get to uh, hear your word preached, and we pray that Lord, you would allow your word to have its effect on our lives. It's your son's name we pray.